please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We're continuing the story, the Christmas story. Uh, We are such a Christmas church, we're going to continue the Christmas uh, story next week after Christmas and beyond, on through January. We are going to be the Christmas church, and so uh, we're very excited about, about that. Luke chapter 1, if you please stand with me as we read verses 39 through 56, looking at Mary's Christmas carol. Verse 39, Luke chapter 1. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Verse 46, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy, holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. You may be seated. And once again, Father, we ask for your guidance, for your wisdom as we look at your word. We pray that you would cause us to respond in humility. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Christmas doesn't come very easy for me. I'm not someone who's naturally gifted at, at doing Christmas I suppose it's because I'm, I'm not a very naturally uh, festive person. I actually have a little Outlook reminder that comes on my computer and, and tells me, uh, Daniel, it's November, Christmas is coming. And it gives me a little list of things that in years past I've forgotten that I need to remember to do. For example, uh, make sure your wife has some sort of tangible gift on Christmas Day. Uh, buy stocking stuffers for the kids. I, I'm not naturally good at Christmas. In fact, this year I had kind of a brainchild that went a little bit awry already. Um, so here's my idea. It's Thursday night. Uh, we have an, uh, the evening free, and I tell Whitney, wouldn't it be cool to watch a, a movie tonight with the family? In fact, uh, let's save some money here. We purchased Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs for Ellie. Let's give it to her tonight and, and let the kids watch, watch the movie. So uh, I tell the kids, kids, uh, big surprise tonight, guys, big surprise Get all your chores done. We're going to have quiet time, and, and after dinner, we're going to have a surprise. And, oh, yeah, a surprise. They're all excited and getting ready for this surprise. 
time to announce the surprise, okay, I say, okay, guys, here's the surprise. We're going to give Ellie a present, and it's something the whole family will enjoy. Well, the kids really focused on the first part of that statement, and I don't think gave adequate attention to the second part of that statement, the whole family will enjoy it. They're like, okay, Dad, seriously, like, one kid's getting a present? Well, yeah, but the whole family will enjoy it. But, Dad, are, no, you're teasing us. Good joke, Dad. Seriously, where's our presents? No, I, no, it's the whole family will enjoy it. Uh, didn't go over very well, surprisingly. Some kids feel like if one kid gets to open a present, all four should. But, you know, different families do it different ways. And if your family does it differently, I have some kids that would like to talk to you. Um, so I'm not naturally good at Christmas, okay? I, I often uh, do things that, that disappoint. Let me uh, be a, a prophet of, of doom here, in fact, this morning. I'm going to make a prediction. Something in your life over the next six days, seven days, if you count the day after Christmas, something's going to go wrong, okay? You may have this great vision for what Christmas should look like in your family, what this week should look like, but let me be, just be a little prophet of doom here. Something's going to go awry. Something isn't going to quite work out the way that you would like it to work out. Uh, maybe it's going to be that the dinner doesn't get cooked quite the way you would have liked it to. Uh, maybe uh, someone gives you a gift that you really are disappointed in. You, you really thought they were going to get you something else. Uh, maybe it's a uh, Maybe it's, it's these precious children that you have, and, and you've been uh, building up to this great Christmas day, and you've, you've given them this present, and you expected just this uh, raptured look on their face and, and gratefulness, and they're not going to quite respond that way. Or, or these children who you've invested so much time in are, are actually going to have the, the gall to, to argue with one another on Christmas Day after all you've done to make it a nice day for them. Something's going to go wrong this week. Guests are going to come too late and leave too early, or the reverse. Uh, something, something's going to go wrong. Let me just encourage you this morning with this. This week, don't focus on what you want. Focus on worship. Just prepare yourself this morning. Look, this Christmas, I'm not going to focus on what I want, this vision that I have for what Christmas should look like and Christmas week and what, how my friends should respond or how my parents should respond or how my spouse should respond or friends or whatever. I'm not going to focus on that. Instead, I'm going to focus on worshiping God. That's my focus this week, not on what I want, but on worship. And I'd like you to sing a Christmas carol to kind of help you with that, I'd like you to sing the song of Mary, Mary's Christmas carol, this song of humility that she proclaims to God in anticipation of the first Christmas. And what we see as we look at Mary's Christmas carol, I believe that the central point that we see is, is this. You cannot, you cannot exalt God without simultaneously humbling yourself. You see what I'm saying there? You cannot exalt God and exalt yourself at the same time. It's not going to work. You must humble yourself if you're going to exalt God. You cannot exalt God without simultaneously humbling yourself. That's the essence of Mary's Christmas carol. That's the essence of the song I'm going to encourage you to sing this week. 
and let's look at the text and look at four instructions that help us sing Mary's Christmas song of humility. The first thing we need to do is this, we need to believe God's message. If you're going to sing a a humble song this Christmas, you must believe God's message. Look at the text, remember where we are. Last week, the angel Gabriel visited Mary. And the angel Gabriel gave Mary this, this amazing news about the, the birth of her son Jesus. This, this, uh, this, this child is going to be a, a king, a mighty ruler. And he says, uh, what's more, your, your cousin Elizabeth is having a child as well. And, and he describes the process of the incarnation and gives her the sign of Elizabeth. And, and then something very interesting happens. Verse 38, Mary responds in faith. And then it says, and the angel departed from her. Mary gets this angelic visitor, describes all that's going to take place, and then the angel leaves. So where's Mary? She's standing in the house by herself. There's no angel to, to go with her to kind of de- describe this to her parents, uh, or, if, or her guardians, whoever's with her. Mom, Dad, I have some news. Gabriel, why don't you just go ahead and tell me what you, tell them what you told me. Or, Here are my family and friends. Uh, guys, uh, this angel Gabriel has an announcement to make. Go ahead, Gabe. Uh, she doesn't have that. She's left by herself there. So what does the text tell us that she does? It would have been very reasonable for her to to feel a little bit of a a concern here. It says in verse 39, In those days, after the angel visitor, Mary arose, she went with haste, she hurried to the hill country, to a town in Judah. She, She rapidly goes to where her cousin Elizabeth and Zechariah live. She desires to, to be with perhaps the, the only two people in the world that could really begin to grasp what's going on in her life. And she goes, she walks into the house, she greets them, and again, there's probably this, a little bit of tension in Mary's soul. How are they going to respond when they hear this news? If, if it doesn't go well with Zachariah and Elizabeth, it ain't going to go well with anyone. And God graciously goes before Mary. What happens? He causes John to begin his ministry a little bit early. John's ministry of announcing Christ. John begins it in the womb. There's a pro-life message there, but we won't go there this morning. The baby leaps for joy in the womb. The Holy Spirit fills Elizabeth, and she has an instantaneous understanding of what's taking place in Mary's life. And notice this. Elizabeth doesn't, just doesn't say, Mary, I understand. Good to see you. Glad, you know, it's going to be pretty cool. Elizabeth cries out with a loud voice. She exclaims, blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Imagine how comforting those words of Elizabeth are to Mary. Mary, you're blessed. The baby's blessed. And I am just ecstatic and humbled that you would come to visit me. I should be coming to you. How is it that you've come here? Confirming Gabriel's message, confirming the testimony that Mary had already believed, and giving Mary a great encouragement at a very crucial time in Mary's life. Elizabeth continues with a very interesting statement here. She says in verse 44, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, The baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her 
from the Lord. Mary responds to Gabriel's message by believing it. She, has, she believes God's message before she receives Elizabeth's encouragement. But notice this about Mary as well. This is a very important thing to understand about Mary's character. It wasn't like an uh, angel appears, gives Mary divine revelation, then Mary begins to believe God's word. Mary is a young girl. Remember, she's 12, 13, 14 years at the, at the, at the outer edge. Young girl, young country girl, who has already in her young life believed God's message. She didn't need an angelic visitor to to cause her to believe God's message. She is a young woman who had already believed God's message, and so whenever this circumstance in her life arose, she was already a person of faith. Now, we're going to look at verses 46 through 56 and see her, her song of praise. Before we get into that, let me just say a couple things about what we're going to see about Mary as we, we look at this song that she sings. One thing is this, uh, she is a person who knew God's word. Every line, every phrase that she utters has a counterpart to the Old Testament. It contains an allusion to the Old Testament or phrasing from the Old Testament or imagery from the Old Testament. Mary's a, a young woman who had already believed God's message. In fact, some critics, whenever they look at this song, they say, look, there is no way that a young country girl could have come up with a song like this, which actually probably says more about the critic than it does about Mary. Mary is a young woman who has been blessed with someone in her life that exposed her to God's word. Perhaps her her parents took her to places where she'd heard God's psalms sung. They had taken her to places where people were reading God's word. Whatever the case, she had been exposed to God's word, and not only had she had people in her life that exposed her to God's message, she had a heart that was receptive to that message. And so she was a young woman who had already thought about the character of God and meditated upon it. We need to move on, but let me just give you an example here. Let me give you an example of of her song. Now, one passage that's a great parallel to this passage is 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. That's Hannah's song as she sings about uh, the birth of Samuel, and she has some very similar themes that Mary does. And so there's a lot of allusions to, to Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2. We also see Mary quoting from psalms like Psalm 35. Notice she says this at the very beginning. She says, my soul, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Psalm 35 contains a a similar idea as well. In Psalm 35, you have that same sort of parallelism taking place. It says, my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. You see the same phrase in Habakkuk 2.13, Habakkuk 3.18. This, she uses the, the term Savior here in verse 47 to describe God. That was an Old Testament idea as well. Psalm 25, verse 5, Isaiah 12, 2. I could go on and on. We could go through every line and show how there's Old Testament parallels in what Mary is saying here. Here's my point. Mary was already a person who believed God's message. She was already a young woman who had been immersed in God's word. She could have greeted Elizabeth, and Elizabeth should have said, you know, blessed are you, blessed is the baby, blessed am I, blessed is she who believed the Lord's message. And Mary should have, could have said, for sure, yeah, God is awesome, huh? God is really, really cool. But no, Mary is steeped in God's word. She has a theological depth to her. And the reason she has that theological depth is because she's a young woman who has committed herself to understanding 
and learning God's word. Don't kid yourself. We are very influenced by the messages that we receive in our culture. Don't kid yourself. Whenever you read books, whenever you watch movies, whenever you listen to the radio, you are influenced by the worldview of the people around you. I heard about an interesting study that was done even on, on bumper stickers. Bumper stickers have an amazing effectiveness in determining uh, how people vote. Okay? Just seeing a, a W on the back of the car affected how people voted. In fact, even before I, I moved to Washington, I, I know, or before I, we started the, started the ch- church, after we moved to Washington, you know what I noticed on the back of people's cars? Those uh, I attend Crossroads stickers, okay? In fact, I was at the, the Blend recently, and I saw Pastor Tom from Crossroads come in, said hi to him, and walked out in the parking lot, and I saw his car. He said, uh, I attend Crossroads. And I saw my car. I saw a Bethany sticker. I thought, my Bethany sticker would probably look really good on his car. <laughs> so I got ready to, to put it on there, and then I saw another car, and it also said I attend Crossroads, and then I started doubting. I don't know which car is his. It'd be kind of funny on his, uh, pretty aggressive on one of the members of his congregation. So I decided not to do it, okay? But uh, I talked to him about it later, and he said that's fine. Uh, he, I could stick it on there. He'd leave it on there. And so if you see his car, I can't do it, but maybe some of you guys. Uh, little project over the Christmas holidays. Uh, the, the point is this, uh, it's, it's amazingly, he told me this, he said those, those bumper stickers have been amazingly, or those stickers have been amazingly effective. Okay? We are creatures who are influenced by the things that we see. And we may in our arrogance say, you know what, I, things like that that I see on TV, radio, that doesn't affect me. It, it does. It does. So my encouragement to you is if you're going to be a person who responds in humble worship of God, you have to believe his message. And to believe God's message, you must be a person who is immersed in his word, thinking about what he is saying and, and appropriating it in your own life. Uh, parents, you must be committed to, to teaching your children the, the truths of God's word. And, and kids, uh, don't kid yourself, uh, you are people who are capable of deep, great faith at a young age. Mary, 12, 13, 14 years old. Remember the words of the writer of Ecclesiastes, this is, uh, remember your creator in the days of your youth. When you're a young person, don't, don't wait until you're, you're old, until you start worshiping God. Now you have the, the energy, the ability to do so even, even at a young age. In fact, uh, this is not a, a novel suggestion in the month of December for a pastor to make, but let me make it to you anyway. Uh, on the Welcome Center, as is, is, uh, you leave today, I've placed some, uh, or Diane created this uh, created these copies and has placed them on the welcome table. There's, there's these uh, outlines that, that uh, can help you read through the Bible this next year. What a great tool this would be to, to this year, be a, a year that you immerse yourself in God's word, thinking deeply about his character so that you can be a person that believes God's message. Mary, not a person that believed God's message just when the angel visited her. She was a young woman who prepared her heart and had already appropriated God's truth in her life And then when circumstances come up in her life, she was able to take God's word and apply it to think theologically about what was going on around her. If the only messages that were taken into our brains, into our hearts, to our soul, is the message of the world, we're not going to be able to think biblically about the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Singing Mary's song of humility begins with believing God's message. Look what happens next in verses 46 through 49. We see that it's also... God also instructs us to recognize his might, recognize God's might. Look at verse 46. Mary said, 
My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary says, I need to respond to, to Elizabeth with, a, with this praise. My, my goal is to magnify, to, to glorify God. And we've talked about what it means to glorify God before. It means to, to reflect his glory. It's like whenever you, you wax your car. Whenever you wax your car, you're not creating light, right? You're allowing that car to, to more effectively reflect the light that's around it, to magnify it. We don't create light. We don't create glory for God. We, we glorify him by reflecting his majesty and his glory. She gives three reasons that she's going to, to recognize God's might, to, to glorify him. And the humble worshiper, the person who's going to worship God in humility, must understand that he is little and God is great. The person who's going to worship God in humility must understand that he or she is little and God is great. Look at the three reasons that she gives that she's going to glorify God. She says, first of all, verse 48, he has looked on the the humble estate of his servant. Mary recognizes not only is she low socially, not only is she low because of her age or her her gender and her culture, she recognizes that that before a mighty, holy God, as she refers to him, uh, she she is lowly. She is a, a sinner not someone that deserves God's recognition. And so, first of all, she says, I'm going to glorify God because he, a righteous, holy God, looks upon me in my, my lowly estate. This is a very difficult under, uh, concept for many of us to grasp. Look, our status before God is the status of a sinner before a holy God. Mary gets that. She recognizes that. Secondly, she says, look, I'm not only going to to worship God because of of my state and the fact that he would look at me, but also because of of his work. She says in verse 48, the last part, she says, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. So God has taken this lowly sinner and through the the miracle of, of this incarnation now, from generation to generation, people are going to look at me and call me blessed. And I know that there's nothing intrinsic in me that deserves that recognition. It's the work of a holy and gracious God. Then she says this, the third reason, the third reason that she's going to worship God and exalt God is because he's mighty, verse 49. It says, for he who is mighty, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. So often, Whenever people describe worship, their worship of God, it's almost like a, a buddy coming to another buddy, you know, a pal. God and I together are going to worship him. The person that's going to come to God with the right heart attitude this Christmas week, the week after that, the week after that, is going to be a person that recognizes God's big, God's mighty, I'm lowly. I don't deserve God's recognition. God doesn't need my worship. My worship is the only proper response of a person in my circumstances compared to holy God. I think that it's important for us to think through this this concept of, of who we are. So often in our culture, we're shackled by our understanding of the self. 
You've heard of the, the self-esteem movement, and even the self-esteem movement has, has taken root in the hearts of, of people in the church. And so often the, the church's ministries and her focus is on, on individuals and, and how we can appeal to individuals. David Wells in his book, uh, The Courage to be Protestant, I, I believe that's the title of it, talks about this idea of the, the consumer mentality of the church. Uh, each person in the church now becomes this individual consumer and their desire is, what is this church going to be able to do for me? A person that's going to rightly recognize God and rightly worship him is a person that understands their low self. Let me just say this. I've never, I've never, I suppose it's theoretically possible, although I doubt it, but I have never encountered a person with truly low self-esteem. I haven't. Now, I've encountered a lot of people who aren't happy with how they look or how they feel or how other people treat them. But the root cause of that is because they like themselves a lot. <laughs> they like to be better looking. They like to be a better athlete. They, they like other people to like them more. The, the root of the problem is not they don't like themselves enough. The problem is they like themselves too great. It's very interesting. There's no, when a person comes to me and says, look, uh, Daniel, I'm, I'm struggling with low self-esteem. Uh, you know, I Turn back to the concordance, low self-esteem, low self You know, uh, Scripture doesn't really address that. Are you, are you sure that's your issue? Look, if low self-esteem was a problem, a sin, I think that God would, would tell us how to address it. Now, the problem is that we think about ourselves in the wrong way. Or we encounter a difficulty in our life, and we refuse to answer that problem in a biblical way. I believe it's uh, Dave Wells who gives this illustration as well. He says, you know, look, when, a, when two people stand in front of a, a congregation and, and get married, they make some vows to one another. And at that time, it's very easy to make those vows to one another because they like one another. This seems like the, the good thing to do right now. This is a, a very, and sometimes it's a very selfish thing. This is a selfish thing to do. We want to do this. This is, marriage sounds really fun and exciting, and so we're going we're gonna to make these vows. He says, the problem is that the vows that they make are made when they're two people at a specific point in time. And they're going to be much different people in five years and 10 years and 15 years and 20 years. And if that root, the root of that commitment was self, selfish at the beginning because it was the best thing for that person at that time, it's going to be much harder in five years or 10 years or 15 years whenever that commitment they made 20 years ago isn't as, as, as uh, exciting as it was back then. The person who's going to rightly worship God, is going to have the same attitude that Mary had. and said, you know what? I'm not that great. There isn't that much wonderful about me. I serve a, a gracious God who will, who will uh, be gracious upon me and will give me purpose and meaning in my life, but there's nothing intrinsic in me that deserves God's grace. It's essential that we understand that truth as we come to worship God. Mary understands that. As we prepare to worship God this Christmas, we recognize his, his might in comparison to us. We recognize that we're separated from God due to our sin. We don't have the ability to approach him on the basis of our own righteousness. We need righteousness from God. Sometimes as we think about God's righteousness, we think of it this way. Well, well God is like super duper righteous, and I'm kind of like mildly righteous. And so it's not that there are totally different kinds of righteousness. It's just a difference of degree. Mary understands something different. Look, it's totally different kind. I'm lowly, and I need God's righteousness. How do we sing 
Mary's song of, of humility begins by believing God's message. It continues as we recognize God's, God's might. Thirdly, we see that we must understand God's mercy. We must understand God's mercy. Look at verse 50 with me. In fact, as you look at these things, uh, notice, notice this. She's, what she's going to do, she's talked about God's work in her life. Now she's going to lay out some, some kind of some theological principles about God and the way that he deals with people. She's going to talk about his, his mercy and who gets God's mercy. Now remember, mercy is, is the essence, the essence of mercy is, is God's compassion. God doesn't look upon us and say, okay, you made the grade and you didn't make the grade, so I'm going to give mercy to you and, and not mercy to you based upon your, just your own intrinsic worth. Uh, God's mercy is born of his compassion. He sees the need that people have, and simply due to his compassion, this internal desire within himself, he gives his mercy. Okay? Now, Mary, as she presents God's mercy, is going to lay out a, a truth that's seen over and over again in Scripture. In fact, she's going to use the past tense as she talks about God's mercy, but she's using it in a prophetic sense. That is, she's talking about God's mercy in the past, but at the same time she's saying, look, it's so certain that God's going to do these things that she's talking about the future as well. Now, she's going to give several examples of God's reversal. Okay? The people that you would expect to have great things happen to them actually have bad things happen to them. And the people that you would look upon as lowly are the people that are going to receive God's mercy. She draws parallels between them. Look at three of them here. First of all, there's a parallel between the people in verse 50 and the people in verse 51. Look what she says. She says, uh, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Okay, And so there, the people that get God's mercy are the people who fear him. Then secondly, she says, but on the other hand, verse 51 he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Okay, And so the, the people who fear God receive his mercy. The people who are proud in their hearts, who have these high and lofty thoughts about themselves, God, God shows them his guns. You know, he shows them his arms. When I show my guns, it's not very intimidating. God shows his arms to you. It's not a good thing. He's showing his strength and his might, his power. So the person who is receives God's mercy as a person who says, look, I, I fear God, I understand his power over me, and God continually, year after year, generation after generation, shows his mercy to those people. Uh, on the flip side, the people who are proud, lofty in their own thoughts, God shows them his guns, he brings them down, he, he scatters them. Lofty thoughts go poof. Think about Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 7, God says that he's going to, to lay Pharaoh low, talks about his lofty opinion of himself, the, the Tower of Babel. People have lofty opinions of themselves, and God just goes, poof, and it's gone. Verse 52, we see another parallel drawn. He says, a God, Mary says, God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the humble in their estate. So here, you have the people who are mighty, God brings him down. So, for example, Nebuchadnezzar, proud, sits upon his throne. God says, look, I'm going to take it away from you. The humble receive God's mercy. The third reversal here we see is in verse 53. Verse 53, it says, he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Three reversals there. The proud do not receive God's mercy. The humble do. It's a very important theological principle. 
those who are humble, those who recognize their need, those who understand their need are going to understand God's mercy and receive it. Reminds me of a story of a frog. This frog uh, hopped into a bank one day. Maybe you've heard this story. And he approaches the teller at the window, says, excuse me, I'd he looks at her name tag, excuse me, uh, Patty, I, I would like to take out a, a loan. And uh, the teller says, actually, it's, it's Miss Black to you. And uh, you, in order to take out a loan at this bank, you need some collateral. The frog says, no problem. And he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out a, a box. He says, here's my collateral. And Patty opens up the box and she says, I'm going to have to talk to the bank manager about this. And she walks over to his office and she says, sir, there's a frog out there that would like to take out a, a loan. And he's, uh, he said, this is his collateral. It doesn't look very uh, collateral-ish to me. It's a banking term. And uh, he says, he says, he looks, Patty, let me look at it. And he opens up the box and says, oh, uh, these are knickknacks, Patty Black. Give the frog a loan. Now, the point of that as we approach a bank, uh, we approach a bank not, not demanding a loan, not saying, look, you must give me the money. We, as we approach a bank, we understand there are certain principles, there are certain processes we go through that allow us to receive the money from the bank. We come in not into a bank demanding a loan, but going through the processes they lay, they've laid out because we're the ones that have a need. Now, it's a far greater need that we have as we recognize God and the provisions that he offers. But we come not to God as, as his co-equals, as his peers, demanding that he give us what we desire. We come to God as beggars, understanding that we have no right to receive the mercy that God is going to offer us. And so the person who comes to God says, look, God, I understand who you are. I understand who I am. Therefore, God, I beseech you on the basis of your own graciousness, please Give me your mercy. That's the person who receives God's mercy. The person who comes in with a proud heart and says, God, this is the way it's going to be, or God, this is the way I want it to be, does not receive God's mercy. This week, if you have certain wants and desires, it's inevitable that those wants and desires are going to at some point come into collision course with what God's plan for your life is for this week, for this month, for this year, for the rest of your life. There are going to be moments in time, more than once, very often, where the plan that you have for your life isn't the same plan that God has for your life. And the question that you should, that you should ask yourself, at that moment, at that moment, who's in charge? The proud person says, I'm in charge. I'm sitting on the throne. I'm the rich. The humble person says, look, I understand this whole mercy thing of God. I need his mercy He's in charge. So often today, we view worship totally wrong. There's a prevailing idea that a person can just simply approach God, and you know, there's a song that, that uh, people misinterpret that we sing sometimes, where it says, uh, come, uh, now is the time to worship. Come just as you are to worship. Now, certainly it's true that as we come to worship God, and I think this is what the song is saying, we don't bring anything to the table. We don't say, God, this is, this is why I should be able to worship you. But some people interpret that song to mean this. I can come to God just with whatever heart attitude I desire. 
This very postmodern idea that, that God is, is always near and, and anyone who wants can just simply cry out to God and, and God will, will, or anyone who wants can just demand that God listen to them and that's not a, a biblical understanding of how worship takes place. So often, we have a wrong understanding about how God views us, especially in our sin. Let me give you, we talked about self-esteem already. This is related to that. Let me give you a great passage that deals with self-esteem and the evangelical church's acceptance of this idea of self-esteem. Look at Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 16. This is a, a very damaging passage for those who believe that they can approach God in whatever way they want and God will still look upon them and look upon them favorably. Verse 16 of Jeremiah chapter 23, thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 16, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. So there were some prophets that were speaking to people who were in sinful circumstances and giving them hope. That what, this is what they say. This is the hope they give you. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. That is an incredibly damaging passage for those who would hold to the, the self-worth of the individual. God says, look, if you follow your own path, it's disastrous. If you set your own path for this next week, it's going to be disastrous. Disaster shall come upon you. The humble person says, God, what's your plan? God, uh, you will exalt the humble. Your mercy will be upon those who fear you. You've brought down the mighty. You've exalted those of humble estate. I understand that principle of your mercy, and I trust I trust in it. Verse 53, it said, I, he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. That's the third reversal we see in that passage as well. You believe God's message, you recognize God's might, you understand God's mercy. Let me encourage you, let me encourage you, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, this is the essential truth of the gospel. A person must understand they have a great need for a Savior. That because of their sin, they have been separated from a holy God. And because they've been separated from a holy God, they stand in line of God's wrath, the punishment of hell. But the good news of the book of Luke, the good news of Scripture, is that a person who understands that has salvation offered to them by God. And through faith in Jesus Christ, this king who, was, who Mary is, is singing about, through faith in this gracious king, because of his death and resurrection, we can have life. That's the gospel message. That's the good news. And over and over again, in Luke chapter 1, the word mercy is used. And God is a merciful God, those who understand God's mercy, that it's given to those who do not deserve it, but recognize that they don't deserve it, receive it. Finally, to sing Mary's song of humility, Mary's Christmas carol here, we believe God's message, we recognize God's might, we understand God's mercy, and we trust God's 
memory. Mary says this in verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. It tells us Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. The last part of, of Mary's song here, she's trusting in God's memory. She understands that what God is doing in her life is a continuation of what he's promised to do in generations past. She's focused in her song on the personal, how God has dealt with her. She's dealt with general theological terms about how God has dealt, dealt with all people. And then finally, she's dealt with how God's provision of his son, the Savior, is part of his continued plan for the nation of Israel. Mary gets it. Mary gets it. She's a person who's a ponderer. We saw that last week. She's a person who's, who's humble. She looks at the events that are going on around her, and she's able to think carefully and think biblically about them. And because she's able to think carefully and biblically about what's going on around her, She's a person who sees the establishment of God's kingdom beginning to take place. My question for you is, are you able to see the establishment of God's kingdom? Begins by believing his message, by recognizing his might, by understanding his mercy, and by, by trusting his memory. If you've ever seen a magician perform a, a little a, a magic show, if you're like me, you're, you're very easily fooled, okay? Magicians love doing tricks on me. I squeal and very excited, but not festive. I, I'm easily distracted. It's not true that the hand is quicker than the eye, but it's very true that the eye can be distracted. And so a magician through sleight of hand can draw our attention away from what we really need to be focusing on to understand how they're doing what they're doing. This Christmas... Don't fall for the flashy. Don't get distracted by the lights and the decorations. Those things are fine, but they're not the focus. It's okay to have certain plans for what you want to happen this week. Our family does. But as you think about this week, as you think about Christmas, as you think about the week after Christmas, the week after that, the month after that, don't focus on your wants. Focus on worship. You cannot exalt God without simultaneously humbling yourself. This Christmas, sing Mary's Christmas song. Sing Mary's Christmas carol. Clothe yourselves with humility as you worship God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Mary, for the blessing that you bestowed upon her and Generation after generation has called her blessed, and, and we do this morning as we think about how you blessed her in an amazing way, not because of her own strength, not because of her own worth, but because of your graciousness. Father, that same need that Mary had, we have as well, and so we, we ask in humility you bestow your grace upon us, and we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.